1: Hello there. Welcome back to The Big Interview. We've missed you. You know we have. Just before Christmas, it's the right time not only to let this Alan Pardew interview come out to our audience, but um, to say thank you. 2015 has been a marvellous time talking to fascinating people and finding out that you enjoy listening to those conversations. Cheers for that. Talking to Alan Pardew was a priority for me because when we've done tiny little bit of information exchanges. I've really enjoyed hearing from him. I thought that as with all big interviews, I wouldn't go into this chat with a roadmap about where I wanted to get to, rather simply ask the questions I was curious about what emerges is a story of pivotal moments in your life and in your career. For example Tomaszewski at Wembley for Poland against England in 73. It's not me who raises Football Club Barcelona, it's Alan and the Dream Team the effect they had on him Charles Hughes and his Neanderthal football teachings, the effect they had on Alan Pardew, Alan's determination to make it through from non-league football in his mid-twenties to within a blink of a footballing eye to be at Wembley twice um, as 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 a successful footballer proving that all along his determination to not accept rejection was right. But He also brings up life-changing moments like a car smash that could have ended his life, in truth. Accepting a pay cut to become a professional footballer. Just think about that in this modern day where we're beginning to talk about, should a top player be earning £300,000 a week or four? But also moments in football, 3-0 up, 3-3, nearly losing, nearly losing his job nearly going through to the Europa League semi-final with Newcastle. Just split-second moments. But for me, the most important moment in this conversation is the fascinating tale of Nigel Rio Coker, the FA Cup final, West Ham-Liverpool and Steven Gerrard. You'll have a laugh listening to tales about Gaza, for example. Alan's views on Sven Gorn Eriksson are interesting. All in all, this is typical of him. He's very forthright. I enjoyed the answers, I enjoyed the process and if you can hear a little bit of twittering away in the background, those are the lovebirds, they really are. First of all it's a pleasure to see you again, you've been awfully kind to me in my career and it's been nice meeting you and watching your progress. I enjoy your football and enjoy what you represent about football. And if you'll sort of tolerate me, where I want to start with is asking a question about, what was the first time you can remember going to Wembley or wanting to go to Wembley, presumably as a youngster? And and what did Wembley growing up mean to you? Well, the 66
0: World Cup, I was five. I have no recollection of that, which kind of shames me to some degree. (laughs) I don't know why, Um, because my dad was a massive football fan. And we used to watch football together yeah. on terrestrial TV because obviously there was only two channels, or three channels was coming or four channels was on the way. My earliest memory of Wembley is not a particularly great one. It was the Poland game. Oh, gosh, yeah. When Sir Alfred, uh, we'd won, you know, we was 74. We'd done the 1970 World Cup, which was a massive memory for me because that was ingrained me into the Brazilian, Yeah. And, and the way, the beauty of football and the romance and everything. And 74 was the reality and the harshness of how it can be. What, what football can, can be, be like. So I was in love till 1974. <laughs> and then I realized, wow, what has happened there? The tackle on the halfway line, the miss. The, the, Is that Norman Hunter's tackle? Yeah, the, he misses the tackle. Yeah. You're like, oh, oh dear. And I, uh, enough about me as a, a, a teenager, well, early teenager then, to realize that, oh my goodness, have scored this is going to be a long night (laughs) and it it was so that is my earliest memory of course we never uh, working class background never really went to Wembley uh, uh, until I was probably uh, I would have been about 22 23 I went to a couple of games at Wembley I remember seeing I don't know what year it was when it was actually the best and you all know this team pretty well um Barcelona won, Sampdoria nil, yeah. and Coombe scored. scored. scored yeah. And he was an unbelievable performance at centre half. And I remember sitting there watching that game and really taking in the technical. So it's always been kind of had uh, peaks and troughs, yeah. Wembley, for me, throughout my career for various different reasons.
1: I, I don't mean, mean to make this a stupid question, but what evaded you to go to Barcelona Sampdoria? So, in other words, it pops ahead of saying England International, it pops ahead of somebody in in the pub saying to you or to your dad, there's a ticket for a semi-final, there's a ticket for the final, whatever. What what drew you to that match? Because if I'm right, you you wouldn't have been able to see a massive amount of either Boston or something on the television by then because it's 92 and there's still not a lot of coverage of continental football.
0: No, I'd been to a couple of games at Wembley, but not many, probably internationals or whatever, it's the first game I probably watched and realised that Champions League final, obviously, that this was a different type of football. Mm-hmm. Uh, because obviously, as you're saying, there wasn't much coverage on TV of any kind of foreign football. No. Uh, national teams you would see, obviously, Czechoslovakia or whoever was coming to Wembley, Holland. Wow, what a team they were. I remember seeing that on the telly and being amazed at how we couldn't hardly get a kick of the ball. Jan Peters, I think, scored a couple of goals in... Just before the '74 World Cup, that would have been probably. But so you know, I have mixed memories. But that's the game that kind of sticks in my mind as uh, an outstanding technical game, and um, changed. I guess in a way, kind of changed my my view of how the game would be played if it was slightly different in England.
1: It changed it because of you enjoyed watching
0: that, or what you I enjoyed did. the the technical aspects of the game. And in England at that time, you got to remember, technical wasn't really top of the agenda. In fact, the technical side of our game deteriorated from, uh, I would say, around the late 80s to maybe 2000, somewhere in that period. This, you know, Hughes's doctoration of the FA had come through to all the coaching systems and everyone was playing long ball when it was aggressive and tough. The technical quality of the England game was, uh, was somewhat reduced I thought by
1: that I didn't live in this country then and I certainly don't want to be judgy or come across as judgy but you know I, I moved to Spain because of a love of a particular style of football and it's been really rewarding just as a person um, experiencing this football but it, it find, I find it really hard to understand that nobody stood up or stopped Hughes and his I think he was part of it was position of maximum opportunity and correct and also, Jack Charlton is kind of deified in Ireland for... You can say it different ways. You can say Pomo, which is now, you know, you have to spit in the ground when you say it. But anywhere in Ireland, if you say put them under pressure, it's fantastic. And it was the same sort of idea which worked for his national team. But is, is have any idea how on earth it managed to spread and
0: stay and not be a poor Well, you have to remember, I took all my coaching badges under that regime. And it was so... I remember we used to speak at lunch, the coaches thinking, wow, this is... Not what I expected that, uh, you know, I really thought we'd be learning technical stuff here and the actual learning on how to coach uh-huh. was quite good, I thought. Remember, Mr. Hughes employed a lot of school teachers and a lot of academics. And the actual to teach, to coach was quite good. Mm-hmm. It was just the subject matter that was yeah. completely so senior pros, we were looking at each other. And a lot of senior pros, of course, wouldn't do them. So there was noises, but of course it was not being heard. And uh, we didn't really have a voice. We kind of done it, got our badges, and yeah. then decided to adopt whatever you see in that. My early career as a manager was somewhat influenced by that regime. And Stevie Koppel, who had great success at Crystal Palace here, yeah. doing mm-hmm. that regime. I played under that regime. So the coaching syllabus in this country
1: uh, was very poor. Does it hold any responsibility for the fact that all these years on it can still be quite hard for even England teams with elite footballers that this country produces to to hold on to the ball in, in times in tournaments in the summer when it's hot when it's a very unforgiving environment if you give it away, where other teams learn to punish you, where now the, the, the fine line between succeeding and failing is as thin as you can possibly imagine. Is there some correlation between what this country's still trying to get rid of and, and, and that, those years of teaching? Or, or do you think it's out of the system now?
0: Well, I wouldn't say it's out of the system. It slightly worries me that we don't play any competitive football until you get to the development group. So if you're under 16, under 14, there's no league table, there's no trophies, I think there's a cup you can win, the FA Youth Cup, that's about it. That worries me a little bit. So I still think there's some massive improvements to be made in our coaching syllabus and our way we bring our kids through. Mm -hmm. In terms of the Premier League, what the Premier League has given us is a view of the world, close up. Rather than watching it on TV, it's in front of us now. Aguero's, Taves, They've all come through this system. We can name a thousand players who are from France, from Spain, from South America, are all in the Premier League. And of course, it's influenced the game massively and coaches as well. And um, if that hadn't have happened, let's just say the Premier League hadn't have happened. We didn't get the finance for it. I really would worry where we, were, yeah. where, where we would be now. Because really and truly, the FA is slightly detached and has gone along and, you know, improved a little bit, improved a little bit, improved a little bit. But it's been the influx of foreign coaches and foreign players that have influenced coaches like myself more so than anything I've picked up on any coaching course in England. And that is a slight worry.
1: Before we develop that, because I think it's a lovely touch that you say that and the way in which your view on football and how you might coach it, how it might be played, to seeing a particular Frenchman you've got in your midfield, who I think is a very gifted footballer, very enjoyable to watch, and I I know you've said he's also a super pro. But before we go there, you you talked about lack of competitive play for under-16s and so on. Can I I take you back to your playing days before you hit the big time? Because there's a huge amount being made of Jamie Vardy, rightly now, Mm. fantastic. And it's a story that makes everybody happy. And I think it gives everybody hope, but to some degree it echoes your story, it echoes Ian Wright's story, there are many others. One Chris of the interviews we did here was Chrissy. And, and Chris, I mean, Chris <laughs>
0: Waddle will do something that I don't think Vardy will do, uh, well he might do. You know, he won a Champions
1: League medal. Well, Amazing. Chris, Chris you know, he, he goes abroad, he's a very cultured man now, he brings... That stadium you were in at the weekend, it was the velodrome, wasn't it, you were, it, not Monaco. No, in the Marseille's Noob Stadium. In Marseille New Stadium. So he, he brings the old velodrome to its knees in worship, and he was very funny about life over there, but basically he's still a rock star there now. <laughs> but he was, you know, what he says, he was putting spice in sausages as, as a kid, he didn't believe in himself, he was rejected, he, he became a goalkeeper, he played amateur football, and nearly didn't make it and found the transition into even Newcastle's reserves set up really really hard but what was life like while you were I don't think were you even playing in I don't know Corinthians and Dulwich and whatever thinking there's still a professional life in this for me or were you playing for the pleasure or for the book money where were you at in, in that stage
0: of your career well bizarrely I still felt that I should have been a pro that kind of ate into me uh, through my 20s that I've been dealt a harsh hand a little bit, but it never really ate into me. It wasn't something that I would bore someone with, but it ate into me when I played. So I was always, whenever we played a pro team or we had a preseason friendly against a pro team, I would be extra committed, extra letting them know that it should have timed me, <laughs> uh, but of course, When I look back on my time as a young player, I was actually technically pretty good. Not very good, but my body was weak and my body didn't come to me till I was about 22. I didn't get any strength till I was 21, any kind of body strength. So I can understand why I missed the boat. So I wasn't bitter or twisted about it or I just knew that I could do it. I just knew I'd played enough against enough good players ex-pros who come into non-league and in those games I was just telling you about to know that I could do it. You know, at 25, I'm thinking, hmm, don't see it now. And then it arrived. So probably just as it was waning, that kind of desire and belief that it was gonna happen, uh, it,
1: it did happen. Before I ask you who Billy Smith is, what's the color and the texture of life in those teams, in those leagues?
0: Well, I always say this to players, the winning mentality never changes through any technical level I've played at. And I've played and managed, I would suspect, at every senior level in England. So I think I'm in a good position to say. <laughs> so, you know, I could be sitting with an accountant who went to uh, Oxford. I remember at Casuals we had a couple of real old gentry still sort of hanging about. And, uh, but their desire to win was no, was no less than mine. So that doesn't change. So you've got to imagine you put a group of guys together. They've been working, whatever. The winning mentality is there. Technical ability, of course, is not there. The fitness is not there. The preparation is not there. The organisation isn't there. But the winning mentality is there. And that shows its head in unbelievable ways at non-league sometimes. Sometimes I've been in teams that have a greater winning mentality than pro teams that I've managed even. So um, that is something that... um, that transcends. But uh, my period in non-league was a great experience for my personality. I think if there is one thing that's helped me in management, I had an interesting night Saturday after our victory. I had my Sunday teams from when I was 20, Christmas drink, uh, those that are still alive, bless them. And uh, we was talking and I know I can handle most personalities, most situations most uh, conversations because of my experience in On League and the multitude and the fabric and the, of this great tapestry of people that comes through that world.
1: What, so, have the, what have these guys gone on to do?
0: They've all gone on to do weird and different things. Some are now retired. One worked in the meat market and become hugely successful. He went from the shop floor to owning the company. I've had other guys who uh, become builders now own their own building company, advertising guys uh, who have done quite well, one or two have not done so well, the divorces and the usual family issues that go on and loss of job. And But of course, like a football team, what that brings you together, that's yeah. your cement, yeah. is your memories of your football team. So it was nice to have all those guys who, were, who have been successful and all those guys who haven't been successful
1: meet and, and have a shared Agenda It's quarter of a century now That you've been Their big success story In football If we could time machine ourselves Back to Then Would they have been surprised By something like this For Alan Pardew would, would they have seen That mentality And that you, the, the words you were using About I, I feel I, You know I, I've been Hard done by By football You were motivated by that Not bitter Would they have seen Anything like this For you then
0: I don't think so I think I genuinely always had kind of leadership qualities. I think that they could have seen in me. Yeah. I think they would have said, oh yeah, I think Pards will you know, be a manager of a Sunday team, Saturday team, non-league team, to have gone on uh, where I've gone on. Of course, they could never have predicted that. And I couldn't have predicted it at that time. I had to change my knowledge uh, quickly. I had to kind of absorb a lot of professional knowledge quickly to become a coach. Mm. I had a lot of non-league knowledge and a lot of that winning mentality in me, but I needed to channel it into uh, something that had uh, a professional structure and organization around it. I was a real kind of sponge when I come into the pro-, pro game, whereas guys would go home after the training, I wouldn't, I'd hang about and listen and talk to coaches. Keith Peacock, when I was at Charlton, was a big mentor of mine. John uh, Griffin, who was Chief Scout, he's still Chief Scout here, was Chief Scout at Crystal Palace then. I brought him back when i come here and uh i would tap into him what do you do How's it work da, da, da. so it was a real real kind of like i knew it was a privilege for me to be in a program uh
1: at that stage so there's no way i was gonna let it slip we have one mutual friend i spoke to i didn't speak to many but he said exactly it's funny you mentioned Chapman. so you built a guess who it is he said oh brilliant motivator brilliant motivator and clearly on the pitch, in the dressing room, in training, lifting people, going beyond his own performance. Really strong words. Billy Smith, I'm, am I right in thinking that Billy, who I've never met, was, was a big influence in well, Billy, how, how Billy you Smith, the
0: league? Billy Smith saw something in me at non-league level that uh, others uh, didn't see. And um, he transformed me as a non-league player into uh, a creative player, and a player to influence his team in terms of leading the team and uh, being the kind of iconic figure in his team. So I have a great debt to him. He's uh, somebody that's been hugely successful on non league level. Ian Wright came and play for us. We had Tony Finnegan, we had Andy Gray, we had myself, all players that he fed into Crystal Palace. Good names. Big names, yeah. And, Andy uh, played at
1: Marbella. Andy Gray, yes. Andy Gray. I, I was I was on holiday and I watched him playing for Marbella and couldn't believe it. Yeah. And Tony went to Falkirk, if I'm right? Yes, that's Tony right. And had a little spell up there. Ian Riley. He yeah. did okay for himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Paul Harding, and
0: an actual fact, me and Paul Harding played, whose name you might not be familiar with, but I remember he came into the pro game late, he played for Billy Smith, I was late. And then we kind of went different. You know, he went to Pro and Pro And then we ended up being captains, myself of Charlton and him of Cardiff. And we looked at each other, we shook hands in <laughs> the middle of the pitch. And I went, it's strange, isn't it? Here we are.
1: <laughs> Football's beautiful like that, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. as those moments, doesn't it? Yeah. I think it's what it makes it... I think as much as seeing a winning goal at San Siro and somebody lifting the cup with big ears, I think that's the, the mm. beautiful tapestry of football as far as that some human stories yeah, and great. success, yeah. particularly against the odds. So I think he, Billy, maybe recommends you to either Stevie Copple or yeah. Rownods,
0: and you're here. Yeah. So uh, pivotal game, really. I played for Dulwich against uh, for Billy against Yeovil and uh, the manager who you might remember that played for Manchester City, Jerry Gow. Oh yeah. He
1: played uh, was, for Bristol as well, didn't yeah, he? Big, City. Big oh, yeah. Big
0: Bristol City, and he was now manager Yeovil, player manager, and I destroyed him. I mean, I literally <laughs> run all over him. And uh, to his credit, he didn't take it as an insult. He decided to sign me. So I ended up at Yeovil and uh, enjoyed it. But of course, I was working. I was up at seven, midweek game. So I just go for a midweek game at Yeovil and we would play every week, every midweek, because you know Yeovil was like the Manchester United of non-league. So we had Western Cup, Isthmian Cup, league games. Etc. Etc. I had midweek game every week, so seven o'clock would get up. I would work hard. Sometimes have about ten minute lunch period, so I could finish at quarter to three. Get in my car, drive to Yeovil. Hope fingers crossed that three o three wasn't iced over in the winter. Touch and go. Touch and go. Get there late a few times. Play a game. Get in my car. Drive back for two and a half hours. Arrive home. I don't know half, twelve, one o'clock, sometimes later, and then, and then start work the next day. And it was on one of those journeys home in midwinter when I was driving home and bizarrely, something had happened in the road and there was cones literally everywhere. So someone banged them or something, pushed them around. And it got stuck under my front wheel. I spun round about eight times in my car, ended up in a ditch. No, not a scratch on the car, not a scratch on me it really was like, oh, I can't let this, I can't do this. Yeah. And I kind of went back to Yeovil and said, look, I, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. Transfer list and uh, Palace decided to come for me. Those two things were kind
1: of pivotal uh, in, in me getting to pass, Palace. You know, I spoke to, I don't uh-huh. want to name him on this, but I spoke recently to, to a Premier League player who, who spent some of his holidays working with friends who are joiners because he's obsessed with creating something, doing something practically his hands. now that's not what you did but you were very successful and very good at what you were doing and was there any doubt about co- com- commercially what to do? it choose? was a doubt because when Ron offered
0: me 200 pound less than I was getting as a builder and, a, and as a player that was a lot of money then now you can laugh
1: about it but that's a big decision
0: yeah, I really kind of I was like I was pleading with him to say look you know come on I earn uh, Almost twice this. What I'm getting. Anyway, I decided to, to take a chance. He promised me he'd look after me if I did well. What that was good enough you? for me. What, what 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 swung the decision for you? There was no decision. He really and truly could have offered me hundred pound a week and I was signed. <laughs> so it didn't really matter. But it did matter because at that time I'd committed to a house. I had a car. So I had certain things I had to pay for. So. But he was good to his word. He looked after me. You know, I, I didn't do well for the first sort of six months. It took me a while to break in. Once I broke in and did well,
1: he, he gave me a new contract. So, you know, he was good to his word. At what stage did you pinch yourself? Because I don't know how many times. You must have talked a million times about scoring a semi-final goal. But even, I guess, in the build-up to knocking teams out and then playing Liverpool in the semi-final, there must have been a moment... I don't know, Was it, probably there wasn't any self-doubt once you have gone that far, but was there a moment when you thought, well, this is just utterly fantastic? The accumulated things that come with it, the pressure, I don't know if you did grandstand or bombarded with people asking for tickets. These must have been quite new experiences at that stage.
0: Well, we was uh, at what is now would have been a championship side when I arrived, and uh, we had right and bright, so that was handy um, because um, it gave us a chance for success and behind those two really were like warriors. I mean Steve Koppel chose a few warriors to play in that team but not bad warriors and I actually found my feet in the promotion push. We had a couple of injuries and I'd secured the central position and it was the playoff game against Blackburn Rovers to get us promoted that really gave me the confidence to think Definitely, I can play. All through that summer, the speculation in the local paper here was, of course, to replace me. I was the one that had to go out of the team to take them forward to be a Premier League team. And in in the heart of hearts, I probably thought, "Mm, it's probably right, Uh, you know, but I ain't going to let it happen. Yeah. So that first uh, season, and we obviously went to Liverpool and got beaten nine, was actually a good period for me. I kind of was doing quite well although our results were indifferent mm-hmm. so it turned out to be a pivotal period
1: culminating in the in the semi-final of course what was the job then you, you, you talked about warrior players but you know you could play you could read the game Steve was also a, a guy who liked football when he could have it I know you had two very good footballers in front of you but as a midfield what was your job well ironically I kind of started when
0: I was at school and uh, I was a defender, so a defensive midfield player, and when I went to non-league, I became a creative player, because obviously my technical level was above what I was playing at yeah. school, so I was in district team and all yeah. that. And Anyway, I become a, a kind of number 10 uh, in non-league, and then when I went to pro, realized that my technical level wasn't good enough to be a number 10, so I dropped back and become a defensive midfield player, really, uh, with legs, uh, to go and nick a goal now and again. And that really was my job. But the other side of my job, which Stevie Copper was very good at, was to man Mark. So if there was a job that he, he wanted done in that midfield, that was my job. So Gascoigne and I had to mark man to man a couple of times, Brian Robson a couple of times, Steve McMahon at Liverpool, John Barnes at Liverpool. so that would be my particular role to make sure and I was very concentrated on that aspect of the game I wasn't somebody that um, you could give a job to and I would be flippant about it yeah. you know I'm, I'm like that you know do the garden I'll, I will do the garden you know I'll make sure it's all in lines and it's in I've sort of got that OCD about me even my desk and everything around me my files and it's all pretty, pretty tight. I have to say it's blooming impressive. Yes. Yeah. So that's that's just the way my makeup is. So of course, but I also had to be tactically aware of times when to not man mark and when to release from that job, and I think that helped me become a, as a coach become uh, understand uh, for players that there is a game plan. There is a mm-hmm. there is a certain things that you do need to do but then there's also jobs that you have to kind of follow your instincts and i've always been good coaching flair players it's probably my asset i don't know why that is might have something to do with that but that is something that um, i can give them jobs i can give them what they where they need to be in certain situations but also be able to give them that freedom and it might come back from... It might be a center of my playing days, but that's, that's something I'm good at.
1: There are many transitions that you watch on a pitch and they're, they're increasingly easy to understand. Like the modern trend is to take a winger and teach him how to be a wing-back, maybe even just a full-back. And I think quite often you can see players with the intelligence and the reading of game that they can oscillate between playing next or a centre-half whether you want to call it, a sweeper or a libero play in the middle of an organising you know, well, role. I robot. mean,
0: you know, what you're talking about is a player that turned up for me uh, on, uh, in, a, in a very difficult c- circumstance was Mascherano. Mm. There's this guy um, who's a fantastic passer, possibly the, the safest passer I ever see it's other scary. than Michael Carrick. I'd put them two very similar in their passing technical ability. Could I see him as a centre-off? No, to this day, I still can't see him as a center right. Thank the Lord you said that. Yeah, and there's probably only one team in the world yeah. that could play him as a centre-half. So it was amazing that uh, he,
1: he ended up there. I've watched him. My, my knowledge is, my eye is, is not yours, not as good. When Pep first did it, it was auxiliary because on the night of the Wembley final, Puyo's not fit, Abidal's back from a cancer scare, but as Abidal's told me in a film that we're making didn't Expect it, shocked out of his skin that he was playing, and you think my won't go when well, he copes then, but when it's day after day after game after game after game, he was exposed positionally, a bit rash, height. Yeah, if you would suck the juice out of what you've said about the age of 21, 22, 23, 24, 25, he's done that. He's gone, I'll tell you what, i learned from that. We'll learn from that as well, I'll learn from that right. to the point at which now, hmm, you not bad, yeah, that's right, <laughs> and suddenly he's comfortable, yeah. But I mean, okay, you you've picked up beautifully in what I'm saying that he didn't look like a natural but you could you know Carracks played in the centre at the back hand in midfield. You can ask you could ask PK to do that easily, Busquets has done it, okay. But across the game there are certain positions. But when you change from somebody who'd been a creative player, a bit of time on the ball, a vision about where to put a pass, a ten-ish type of player, to a player who goes one on one with some of the greats of that age of English football, that's a big transition. What's it like? Because when you're ten, a lot of the time, or, or a creative midfielder, a lot of the time, there's only you in your head. There's the ball? I've read it. It's what I want to do with it. Where's my space? What is he not like that? Suddenly, you know, it's, it's Tyson way around. And it's, yeah. There's two of you in, in, in that in your mm. space in your head. And what was it like? Gaza, Robson, Barnes, and how well, did you Gaza, manage it?
0: Gaza was uh, was a tormentor. Gaza would uh, go out of his way to kind of humiliate uh, any player. That was his style. You know, he was brilliant. But I wouldn't leave him. Um, (laughs) That's a good expression. Yeah, I wouldn't leave him alone. So we had a kind of uh, funny relationship. And he's not, he he was, uh, let's just say he's verbally, uh, he was verbally enhanced (laughs) like myself. So we had some uh, interesting debates on the pitch. uh, But he was funny. I always enjoyed playing against him. But I remember at Crystal Palace, he ran me across the pitch. He had the ball at his feet, and he was dragging it with one and towing it with the other foot. And he went all the way across the pitch. They were winning at the time. And I could hear the crowd not laughing, kind of chuckling, like, you know, you can at a game, you know, and like, like, oh. But I didn't move. I just didn't make a tackle. I just followed him across the pitch. And when he passed it, I said, well done. And we carried on playing, and he laughed. And and that's just how I was at that time. I was just like motorised in my mind
1: that that was the job I had to do. And I guess, like, I, didn't, I didn't see the incident, but as you've described it, because you were doing a job and, and taking the, the fact that around there was a bit of a free zone around the ground, you probably wasn't going anywhere that dangerous either, was it? It, it no, kind of no, looked exactly. okay, but you,
0: you had done your job. Exactly. You know, at the end of the game, uh, I remember a few of the Palace but yeah, about one guy took you across the pitch and to be honest, I wasn't even, it doesn't even embarrass me, I don't even know, I think even Brighty, I've heard him say that a couple of times, bring it up as a sort of, <laughs> you know, a funny story. I'd love to see a clip of it again because I know it didn't bother me in the slightest. And that's uh, and that's kind of how my mentality had become by then. I was really kind of like focused on uh, what my job was and what Steve Copper wanted me to do, and that was it.
1: A lot can happen in the next three years, like a chatbot, maybe your new best friend. To get started, visit plushcare.com dot slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com dot slash weight loss. That wasn't what I had to do. You 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 very nearly robbed Alex Ferguson his first trophy. You know the the breakthrough moment for Alex of yeah. modern football in England. Yeah. The breakthrough well. moment. There've been dynasties. But let's say Crystal Palace win that cup.
0: You know, we should have won it, and um, I remember going down the tunnel. I walked down the tunnel quite early and Alex was outside his dressing room. He was waiting for his players to come in and one or two had already arrived and he was, you know, ushering them in. I could see the relief. I remember going in our dressing room saying he can't believe how lucky he is. We should have won that, guys, you know. And make sure we do it the second time, which we we made a bit of a mess of. But um, yeah, it was one of those moments in time when, and all great managers have them, you could even argue Mourinho on the touchline against Old Trafford. It might not have worked out like that. Shouldn't have. It off and safe. it shouldn't have. Yeah. So, you know, great managers still have, you still need the breaks now and again. You could say you have to earn them or whatever reason or your preparation was such, etc., etc. But you still need the breaks. I'm sure we've lost some unbelievably great managers because that... When the a dice game, didn't fall for That day him. didn't go. That particular day
1: You've didn't tantalized go. You've tantalised me because... And I've had a few moments. Do you have a view of why that is, that sometimes the, the dice do fall for for these guys? Is it character? Is it how hard you work? Do, do you have a view? You know, famously, Jack Stewart said, the harder I work, the luckier I get. But it's it's a misnomer. He didn't actually mean... He was taking the, he was taking the piss, of my podcast, I can't say that. He's saying, no, no, no the, the thing you think was luck wasn't luck. But... Manager I can't influence the fact that Benny's feet kicks, and Castillo's offside. and doesn't give
0: it. I remember managing Reading Football Club, and I'd done okay up until this point, and we went, and we was leading 3-0 at halftime, and I needed to win this game to save my job at Notts County. At 82 minutes, it was 3 all, and I'm thinking, and they had a chance and I thought if that goes in, that's me. And forget where I'm sitting now, forget it. That forget it. That it's not gonna happen. And yeah, I prepared the team. Yeah, I worked hard. Of course. Like all every other manager, prepared and worked hard. Yeah. And we went up the other end and scored. <laughs> against the run of play and won the game. And everyone went, oh, you know. Uh, yeah, yeah, of course. Of course.
1: <laughs> it was all designed. It's my first time I, in any of these interviews. I wish that was 10 seconds of visual because yeah, exactly. your hand and the smile and the ruefulness and the, that was beautiful expression. Yeah. So that's
0: and uh, and pivotal moments at Newcastle I had when um, I could have lost my job I also feel I could have won the Europa League at Newcastle because the game against Benfica, Benfica game was, we should have won yeah easily Ben Arthur has a chance for 2-0 for before they score and it would have been game over they wouldn't have come back from that oh. they went on to the final obviously against Chelsea so you know you get moments the FA Cup final I'm looking at Benitez on the sideline as a manager he's done I can see him he, he knew he was preparing his speech for the defeat. And, and then literally a, a football miracle happens. And Well, have you ever seen these are moments that change careers? Now if I'd have won the uh, cut, FA Cup then, where would I be now? What would by my personality be different? It might be completely different. Bit of glory at that stage, going on to a big club, uh, success or not success. I might not be where I am now. So these things sometimes happen for a reason. I don't actually think it's in the gods or in the, I think sometimes it's just fate. Mm. Yeah, I can't determine uh, an actual factor. So there we go back to what I used to do at Bristol Palace because Peter Grant whispered in my ear with 10 minutes to go, just get Nigel Rio Coke, to man mark Stevie Gerrard and we've done it, right? Oh. And I went, because I'm not stupid, that was a good idea. So we man mark Stevie Gerrard and if you watch the game, because now I'm telling you, you'll know, you watch the last seven or eight minutes of that game, Nigel Coke was all over him like a rush. And Steve Gerrard decided to drop off deep because he wasn't influencing the game, he wasn't getting a kick. And Nigel Ryokoko being the honest pro that he was, stayed deep. Defends the space. To prevent the back four. Stevie Gerrard picks it up and shoots from Another country, yards. Another country, basically. So there you go. So we did everything right. I could look back, I still look back on that time and that goal and I could see it now. And I've, I don't blame Nigel Ryokota because if it was me I'd have done exactly the same as him. That was a natural instinct yeah. that he had to do. Was protect the back four, not going Mark Stevie Gould, are you going to do nothing from there? Goal goes in. So, you know, these, uh, the, all these things are linked. That's what's great about football. I can see moments when great managers have moments in their career. I've seen Angelotti lose when he perhaps should have won and won when he should have lost. I've seen Jose win when he should have lost. Jose lose when he should have won. So these defining moments, and as you say, you're quite right, they're getting fine now actually. Mm -hmm. And particularly in league we're in, they are really fine now. Mm -hmm. We have won seven, lost six. We've actually won more games than Tottenham and Everton, but we've lost six games and actually we could have won the six and lost the seven mm-hmm. we are in there that's what's good about us we're a good team and we fight and we're a real fighting team we're in there all the time win or we lose we ain't got that real control of the game that's something we've got to get hopefully in the next second part of the
1: season I feel um, that w- when we're turning this is only my view as an observer the reason we're privileged to be here is that you've done this and learned from it when I watch, one of the things I learn that, that counter twists the kaleidoscope when you've had the Reading moment at 3 0, 3 3. Oof, they haven't scored, and then we scored, and then you've had, we've got it just right. We're going to protect the 3 2. FA Cup final. You put the right man on the right man, and it still doesn't work out. And in moments like that, what I think I've learned is, is, is what you do afterwards. And my memory is, and I think it's under, probably underwritten, as a Crystal Palace team not long after the cup final, maybe 12 months, you go back to Wembley, don't you? And beat Everton, mm. thump. In yeah, fact, thump did. a very good Everton side. Yeah, And people don't, I think it was the Football League, trope? Yeah, Was that it,
0: We actually, we should have been in Europe because Man United already in Europe yeah. that year, but it was the year we got banned. Yeah. So the FA and, the FA were in charge, weren't they, the top division at the time? decided to create this competition like another League Cup, basically. Yeah. And that's what we won. Um, I can't remember. Zenith Data, I think it might yeah, have been called. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, no, we was we was actually a better team the year after. I didn't play. I was, a, like, first sub, really, in them days. So you only had two subs. I was pretty much getting games here and there, but See, wasn't first team. I think you played in the final. Yeah, I played in the final, no. yeah.
1: No, I played in my share, but we finished. I mean, seriously, looking at that Everett side. Yeah.
0: It's a right but we finished third. Yeah in the league that year Crystal Palace third I mean that takes some doing I'm never going to top that but Stevie Koppel don't get any credit for that because it was not Premier League we're all about the Premier League now Premier League stats and like we got oh we we broke the record on Saturday 5-1 first time uh, we won 5-1 I'm pretty sure if you go back to Stevie Koppel in the first division he's got a 5 in there Mm. I'm pretty sure and
1: a third place
0: at a further place it's
1: yeah. extraordinary actually right. isn't it when you look yeah. back
0: on it yeah it was
1: Beca- because okay it wasn't the Premier League with all its beautiful marketing and its clever organisation and but its football still a bit bumpy then you know the hooliganism was still a problem whatever maybe if people are unfairly expunging those days it's because it brings with it but that's no less to achievement in fact no that's right the teams were at least as good in fact in my opinion teams were better then
0: well, I think well it's, it's an interesting thing because you know I look at the team's from fifth down, and they are better. And yet, I look at the teams fifth up, and I don't think they're as good as they were.
1: Quality-wise,
0: I think we're talking about yeah, yeah correct. Maybe creativity, intelligence. Oh, they bigger clubs now. Wow, look at two hundred eighty-two million for thirteen percent of Man City today.
1: But you don't pay Johnny for your floor. ticket when you're punting. You don't pay for your ticket. to See size of their budget. No, of or course. Well, our account of, of course, you pay to see the footballers. Of course. So some of the great sides we've had in this country
0: the Liverpool side that cleaned up Alex Ferguson's two United teams you could argue three the Arsenal team of Vengers, the Invincibles we ain't got a team like that at the moment no even Chelsea last year people say to me about uh, Jose you know struggling this year but they struggled for the last two months of last season they literally crawled over the line and everyone was going oh they've lost a little bit of spark they were hanging on for that title and they managed to do that
1: You've got a friend there. I learned when I first came over to meet you really properly at Newcastle's training ground, you said to me, no, I've got somebody there who you were talking about, he would probably help you in the market where I think you've proved to be very good with whatever network of help. I think you've got a tremendous eye, tremendous appetite for detail, which is fantastic. But what's the background of of having a friend? In Mourinho, because that's some years now, must have been from when you first went up against each other in his first year at Chelsea. Am I right?
0: Yeah, we, pro- we probably
1: um, had a connection with Brendan Rogers, who was my
0: academy director at Reading and ended up being uh, obviously an assistant to, to Jose at uh, Chelsea. So that helped. I think Brendan probably. Uh, Told him a few stories and you know, he must have liked what he heard. So he was sort of pre-armed before he met me But I've always liked his character uh, and I do and I think Unfortunately, Jose, you know um, Has this way of playing with the press at times that was always gonna hurt him if it went bad And that's what's (laughs) happening. But I I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not
1: here for the. No, but everybody can draw their own conclusions about what he doesn't say. What What can't
0: escape is his talent. You know, and what you can't underestimate is his ability to keep a team focused particularly when they get in winning positions. You know, you talk about golfers who get in winning positions. You say like McIlroy, once he gets up there, you go, oh, forget it, you know, you ain't gonna, you ain't gonna claw him back. Mm-hmm. And Spieth, you can look at him and say the same, and Tiger in, in Win Tigers Day. This is like football teams, Jose's teams like that. When they get their noses in front, they're very, very difficult. There's not many times I can think of he's been pipped at the post. That ain't happening. Once he gets his nose in front, that's an art to keep the team as motivated and organised and everything right to the wire
1: and get the title and get the cut. Apart from many things about his achievements to admire, one of the things that's been patently clear in he, he's always been able to get under people's skin, get under the skin of his players, mm. make them believe more, play better, enjoy themselves more, create a team spirit. Sometimes the circling of the wagons, but not quite like Fergie did when it was literally non-stop for quarter century, everybody's against us. He sold this falsehood to the players and they bought it. Every, <laughs> it was brilliant work, brilliant work. You know, he could be on the back of a wagon in the Wild West selling hair tonic, and people, you know, everybody would have bought it, including the buffalo. But Jose seems to have this. Um, really good one-on-one skill to, to lift a man, lift a player and maybe make him better, make him is, believe.
0: Listen the psychology of a footballer these days is, is your big battle because I look at coaches and I look at setups and I look at tactics and, and I look at all that and I think yeah, you're probably we're probably on the same page there on that one, mm-hmm. so where's the difference going to come? Well it's about what you're going to do at half time, what you're doing before the game as a manager, where are you going to lift them? It really goes undetected a little bit by the media, in my opinion. What managers are like in that dressing room? Because I can talk about Sven-Göran Eriksson as an Englishman managing him, managing English players. I could never see it. A lack of cultural connection in how to I couldn't see what I couldn't see something on telly about him. What I couldn't see in him when I spoke to him privately. See him on TV what he would have done for me in the change room that would have really made me go the extra mile. Now, I could reel off Sam Allendyce, Terry Venables, George Graham, Jose Mourinho, Alecford, Brendan Rogers, all those people, there's something about them that would I know could touch me as a player, and I couldn't see it with him. So that's looking at it in that kind of scale of that is what I think the modern manager has got to be really at the top of his tree how do you reach players how do i reach zahar how do i reach scotty dan completely two different characters from complete two completely different backgrounds but you go that's your job that is your job and if there's one art that alex ferguson had that um, sets him apart at times was that he could reach every player in all the time that he managed because it was an incredible long period that he managed and he, and he changed. And he, I remember him telling me the story of Roy Keane, when Roy Keane came in to see him. He left Roy Keane out, and Roy Keane wasn't happy. And I'm not surprised, you know, I can imagine Roy Keane knocking on my door. <laughs> and uh, and Alex said to me that he knocked on his door, and he said, look, you know, you've changed, you have. You know, and uh, I don't like that. And Alex Ferguson turned around to him and said, yeah, of course I've changed. I've changed because the game's changed. You've got to change with the game. My, My management's changed, the way I view the game has changed. Maybe you should look at that. And that's true, that's so true. And um, unfortunately, the problem you have at Premier League or no, actually not Premier League, managing at professional level is senior players coming to the end of their career, actually not realizing that you are trying to do the right thing by them. They think that you're doing everything wrong for them. It might be that you've changed you know, that you're trying, trying to take the team forward and that they now become a byproduct. They mm-hmm. can't accept that byproduct. Can't accept it. They can't see this new vision, this new look. They can't get it. When I speak to other managers and the problems I've had, really and truly, some of my worst experiences are those senior players. The same senior players who come up to me now at functions, now I'm a little bit older, and say, You were right. And you know what? you are one of the best managers and blah, blah, blah. And I didn't see it at the time. And I'm sorry, I apologize. But, you know, I get all those little things and I think, I don't hold it against them. I understand it because when I was a player, I was the same. I didn't see it either. When I got left out at Charlton, I was like, what's he doing, Kerrishly? He's got this all wrong. You don't see it. So you, for a, two or three years, you're blind at the end of your career. Almost completely blind.
1: It feels like a natural progression, because say that guy you've, you've trusted to take his... Not all players, by the way. Not all senior players. Not understood. But, but, but a percentage. Let's say that senior player X is a guy who you've trusted to bring on young kids during your time. He's a guy to whom you've devolved a lot of responsibility in the pitch. He's a guy who's clicked with your ideas and understands your strategy. And he feels actually sort of quite umbilically linked to you. Correct. And then that moment comes along where you're like, nah, not this Wednesday, or not this game, or not away from home, or you need more time to recuperate, or I'm, I'm changing the shape. And, and it's just automatic that, that the pride and the diligence and the competitive nature that's given you all that stuff in the first place has to go head to head into what you're saying. And then it has to be a, a minor you've breakdown got, in the You've got to understand, in, the love. in, in a way, you
0: adopt a child, really, yeah. a new player. Yeah. You adopt a player and you abandon them. And they think, for all the wrong reasons, yeah. that you've abandoned them. And they're hurt. And they're
1: hurt. I, and yeah, and I not two men in football don't usually use that vocabulary, but I've never managed them. But I've spoken to players. And there is just a, how could he? Or, yeah, yeah. or I, I've been let down. Or that's not fair. And yes. if they were allowed, they'd go into a corner and cry for 10 minutes. Yes. It's a natural human... Yeah, they're still getting paid as
0: much, more or less, the majority of them. I, I could give you an example, name and name, and I have no embarrassment about naming the name because the guy is a champion. Shola had me Should have scored the winner for Bolton last night uh, when he spun. Shola, when I went into Newcastle, my first season was massively important for me, keeping the Premier League. We'd lost uh, the big fella to Liverpool for £30 million. Yeah. Shola had to come in. The fans... Didn't really particularly want Shoulder in the team at that point, but he did an unbelievable job. And I've had to leave him out. Could have played him on many occasions for Newcastle, left him out, and I knew Shoulder was looking at me to say, what, why? And yet, I offered him his coaching job last year because I knew he, he understood, he could understand. It, it's kind of a strange love that you can have. <laughs> As a positive and as a negative. Mm-hmm. And I was I'm saying to Shola, you gotta go into management, you got to. Don't not miss that boat. It might be a better boat than your playing career. Because my managing career, of course, has been more successful than my playing career. There's no doubt about that. I was always had more tools for this job than I did as a player. Same as Shola Ramiobi. And I've got a few other players in who are like that. Malky Mackay. Malky is a great man manager. Got passion in the dressing room, can reach players. Mm -hmm. So, now, I have all all these ex-players who are coaches, managers, pundits, or whatever they are, and uh, it's lovely bumping into them, because their version of the same story is slightly (laughs) different. I listen, I
1: think,
0: was it really like that? You know, but sometimes you do get lost as a player, and as a manager, by the way, and there has been times, some senior players, I have probably let down, because I was under pressure, or, Uh, it was just it uh, it was just not going well and I was having to be a bit meaner and tougher than perhaps I should have been with that particular senior player so it hasn't always been one sided I get that and there has been a few senior players that that when they
1: tell me their version of the story I go you know what probably right there should have done. that can't live in everybody's head all the time when you're in the best I I don't really want to dwell on it too much because I'm here because I I hugely admire what I think is, is Gently underestimated Managerial career And one which I think Has probably barely Even reached The glass half full I imagine Seeing the way That you evolve Seeing the way That you man manage Which is a skill That can never be lost um, I imagine That there's more to come Probably cups I'd imagine That a cup Is a name here At Crystal Palace But if I can Touch on the Newcastle thing Compared to where you are now It must be Hell of a good Not to feel as if You're Fighting against The negativity of the fans and the media at a club were nonetheless, the results were superb, and how do you value the fifth for Newcastle with finishing third as a player with a Crystal Palace? There's not a lot between those two achievements. But now, I often wonder, at Palace the crowd can't help you with strategy, they can't help you get the players fit more quickly, they can't help you winkle more money out of the owner. But to be with the communion of that power of a fan base must give you something that you get a buzz off energy wise but also and conviction of but also you can peddle that to the players whether they're coming or whether they're trying hard and training
0: well of course that's a major beneficial aspect of me managing this football club it's dangerous for me because when you've been kind of an icon as a player at a football club to come back and manage it there are going to be times when that icon status is going to get forgotten for sure and that is going to happen for me here at some point because you can't have continued success at a football club and i never had continued success at newcastle but i did have success at newcastle perhaps some success that they um, they took for granted a little bit I-, I honestly thought when we finished fifth some of the local media was like well, this is where we should be and i was thinking well hold on a minute we've hardly spent a penny compared to the clubs we finished above here and it's going to be a problem going forward uh, unless we can really throw some investment at this and it turned out to be a problem. Although I think the connection uh, of me being from London and the owner who wasn't particularly popular, him being from London, they put that together. Uh, but really I was the manager of Newcastle. I was employed by Mike Ashley. When you're a manager of a football club, you're a manager for the fans. You're trying to give them what they want. Mm. Mike never rang me and said, play at the back today never, never, never I tried to put on that pitch at Newcastle an entertaining team at times it wasn't for sure at times we struggled we lost players to injury we didn't invest enough and uh, for all those reasons we had some sticky periods but you know my last game there I remember I knew this was, there was a possibility this might open up for me this place and we played Everton and we won we was ninth in the Premier League and I uh, looked at the press the next day, and our, and the social media, because social media is a massive part of the feeling of the group. So you it shouldn't be. You because. can't. You can't get away from it. I'm afraid yeah. it's the same here. Social media plays a big part now. Looked at it, it was almost like, well, we're underperforming, and I thought it was overperforming mm. with what we had, with the players that we mm-hmm. had. So I really, I knew it was probably the best time for them to give them a new start and uh, me to move on. But when coming to this place, of course, and where we are right now, it's very attractive to players. To sell it to Kabai was easy. I'm the manager here, I'm making all the big decisions with the owner, who has tremendous faith. He was with me when we met Johan. We have a fan base that's right behind us. We have- And Noisy, which is now- Noisy.
1: Not a given. Even in the Premier League, it's not the thing anymore.
0: And we're London. Yeah. You know, and it has, its, it has great attributes for a professional footballer. Access to home from London is easy, whether you live in Buenos Aires
1: or you live in Windsor. It's incredible, isn't it? The, the life of the more they have to, th- can I be there, can I be back in two days? And, yeah. and in and out, if the manager can be two it, it's really incredible, their lifestyle, isn't it? Yeah. I think players are much more professional now.
0: Their preparation, The way they go about their application makes it so much easier for managers like myself these days. I really don't need to worry about preparation and application of their fitness and their eating habits. That is now 90% of my players is on the money. I have to worry about where they are in their spirit. And what you're touching on, what you're saying about Newcastle and Crystal Palace, of course, was a major shift for myself because There's no way I could say my spirit was high at Newcastle at the end. It wasn't. They'd bang me down, bang my spirit down. It wears you, doesn't it? Yeah, and and I am a lot of, my management is about my spirit and and my front foot. And let's, come on, we can do it. We can overachieve. Because you transmit that. That's what I'm about. So of course, this environment was perfect for me. I knew it would be perfect for me. I'm still pinching myself where we are now to when I first arrived here. As I said to you, this training ground and the way it is now, is if you'd have taken a snapshot of it a year ago, you wouldn't believe what you're looking at now. So, you know, we've come a long, long way. And the team is leading the charge. So our academy, is, we've got, I wouldn't even want to take this in my academy venue. It's not ready, it's not done. It's not right for a Premier League team. So the first team is leading this club and all the infrastructure is gonna have to come off the back of the first team winning games. If we can stay in the division this year, of
1: course, The academy is going to get a nice big boost financially. It's it's extraordinary, and presumably for a club like this, although however long you stay, I know you have. is, Is I said it before, so I won't repeat. But an ability in the market, an ability to spot the right guy, weed out the guys who look right but aren't, then to make the deal well, to understand the pitfalls in a deal, and therefore that's what Crystal Palace probably need at the moment. But if you can have add to the community spirit, have guys coming through who've spent four five ten years in an academy and then they're wearing the badge here the power of that i'd imagine must be could be phenomenal once that's put right this club
0: never been better poised it's become a big club than it is now mm-hmm. never been a big club i can say that because i've played it so i know that my fans won't take umbrage with that they'll understand of course it's yeah. not a big club but this club could be a big club. Mm-hmm. We have new investment, which could push us on. The biggest thing we've got going for us, we're playing in a Premier League, which is 40% financially stronger than any other division in the world. Uh, and we're in London. And therefore, we are a very commoditable product. And we just need to uh, realise our potential. I'm saying to the guys this year that the potential in the team should give you the belief let alone the potential in the club that we can do something this year and I think they do believe me I'm getting them to believe me
1: and the next period the next two
0: months will be pivotal to where we finish
1: well I hope it's in a position that earns the club lots of money I won't even get you in the Europa League because we'll never see eye to (laughs) eye it's European football it's a potential trophy you nearly won it once but maybe we'll see you at uh, Wembley and me.
0: Well, I think um, the the cups for us are going to be important in the next three years mm. because I like to think we're going to be in a position to have that quirk of fate fall our way. Uh, because <laughs> if Alex Ferguson thinks a big slice of his fortune was down to good luck, which I've, I know he does, uh, then uh, even uh, lesser mortals like myself need a little <laughs> bit of it. So we hope to have a bit of luck uh, in the next three years. But you know. Next time um, you come here, it'd be nice for me to take you around our new academy, show you that it's as good as this and then we'll have a club we can be proud of because at the minute the infrastructure of the club just letting us down a little bit and it isn't lost on the chairman and not lost on the owners of this football club to put that right. Not to the level of Manchester City or Man United, but certainly to the level of uh, uh West Ham or Everton or a uh, uh Stoke uh, who have been in the Premier League 10 years or whatever
1: success The top team in the academy is always driven from the top down before the lieutenants at ground level can make things right my opinion is the club's in the right hands with you couldn't be better maybe the eagles so high um, it's been a pleasure i'm going to say like i said at the beginning this has been a pleasure you've lived this life and for us we just get to sample a little bit of a boy the adrenaline's flowing A joy a joy Good. to speak to you top, man. thank mm-hmm. you Elm. thank you very much I don't know if it came through in the audio, but that's the first interview that we've done of all of these that I really wished that we'd filmed. Alan's a really expressive guy, and there were a couple of times when he was not lost in his own thoughts but deep in the anecdote where he would move and change his facial expression uh, really vigorously in order to help get the point across. And um, given the fact that we were perched in his HQ, overlooking the training ground, treated fabulously, about to have a nice lunch in the training ground canteen, it was a very good day. Overall, I hope that you've got a feeling for Alan Pardew as a guy rather than simply as the ex reading or Southampton or West Ham or Newcastle manager, the current Crystal Palace boss. I think something special is happening there. I imagine the fans must be ecstatic to have him managing that team at a time when the ownership was attracting new money. Crystal Palace, club on the rise. The FA Cup came up as a theme there. Guess what the draw says? Yeah, in a couple of weeks' time, his Crystal Palace against his former club, Southampton. Should be fun. A big deal now, an important thing. I said at the start what a fantastic year 2015 has been for the three of us, Neil, Martin and I. But without your support, we wouldn't be continuing and therefore there's shout-outs. Of the 1,184 of you who backed us financially, some bought shout-outs including John McIver, Gavin Ray and Tim Jenkins. So to John, Gavin and Tim, I have to say, you're socios, you're members, you're in the gang, you're part of the big interview, you didn't simply feed back to us that you enjoyed listening, you did something, you did something active, you spent hard on cash, I think that's something that inspires us, it's very valuable, I treat every penny that everybody is willing to prize loose from their wallet as a really big vote of confidence and all of us, Backpage Press and I, Alex Beerjacket especially me I have to say on the voice that you hear I have to do the interviews we really appreciate your support and if we were Jurgen Klopp we'd make you all join hands with us and hold on salute ourselves because there are no fa no that isn't working but I feel about you the way that Klopp feels about the Gelp wall at uh, Dortmund and is trying to feel about Anfield dudes thanks for the support get your name on the mailing list it's free at grahamhunter.tv you do that we'll tell you about everything that we're up to we'll do blogs we'll try to give you exclusive content certainly first notice of things it's on that site grahamhunter.tv that you can also buy my books on FC Barcelona and on the Spain Trophy Treble two of the great footballing stories of my career I think all of this is produced by Backpage and me Graham Hunter the music by Beer Jacket that's a very talented musician there He has a big back catalogue. It's worth finding it, listening to it and buying it. Finally, Alex Aidy, you're a star. You look after us. You teach us new things. Audio Boom and you have been great supporters over recent months and weeks. Thanks for your excellent, excellent skill. You're a talented woman. If you're one of the 1,184 people who backed our Kickstarter campaign, thank you so much. If you're not but you want to contribute to the ongoing good health of this show, The Big Interview, please leave a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this and tell your friends about us. It's a growing thing and it seems to be a good thing. From The Big Interview, Feliz Navidad, Bon Nadal, Happy Christmas. Thanks for being there. I mean it.